Welcome to In Context, coming to you from Vine Sanctuary, an LGBTQ-led farmed animal refuge in Vermont. We bring you conversations with authors and organizers exploring the connections between animal advocacy, race, gender, and social justice to help put today's big questions in context. Welcome to In Context. I'm Patrice Jones speaking to you from the grounds of Vine Sanctuary. My guest today is the always fabulous Danny Selemeyer, who is joining us from Australia. And of course, then, I am thinking about the emus here at the sanctuary, particularly the first two emus here at the sanctuary, Tiki and Breeze, who when In Context producer Sarah Jane Blum first saw them. She said, they seem like royalty from another planet, regal, but confused. And that really did capture what they're like because they have a dignity. And oh, I wish you could know what it's like to walk side by side with them looking right in the eyes because they're the same height as you, but they don't belong here in Vermont. Emus are more than 2 million years old. They've been here so much longer than human beings have. Modern humans have only been in existence for 160,000 years. Emus were here on this planet for literally millions of years before we ever even thought of existing. They've survived two different brushes with extinction. They survived a war against emus waged by the Australian government in 1932. And yet they persist. And so they give me something like hope uh, for the persistence of the larger than human world, regardless of whether or not humans are able to do the things that we need to do. Speaking of the things that we need to do, I want to introduce our guest, Professor Danny Selemeyer. Welcome, Danny. Hi, Patrice. It's such a beautiful experience to be here across the world. And, um, and I just love that story about our elders, the emus. Thank you. Danny is a professor at the University of Sydney as well as one of the directors of the Sydney Environmental Institute and the founder of the multi-just, I'm sorry, multi-species justice collective. Can you tell me what that is? Uh, well, it's a mouthful to start with. This. Uh, so the multi-species justice, justice collective, uh, I like to think of as a collective of all sorts of people, human people and people other than humans, who are concerned with thinking about and living a way of being on the planet that takes seriously the aspirations to live well of all Earth beings. So that's a, that's a very non-academic way to put it, but uh, even though it's housed to some extent at the University of Sydney and in other academic institutions. I think of it much more as a life aspiration. Danny is also the book, uh, the author 
of an amazing book uh, called Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future, which Danny wrote in the midst of the horrific forest fires uh, in Australia in 2020. And um, thank you first for writing that book. It's not yet available in the US. Uh, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell folks a bit about it and, 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 then, and then hope that maybe you can share with us some of the things uh, that I know you wanted to share with the world cause you wrote that book. So, so, so when the fires started, uh, you were living, um, I've heard people say that it's in the bush. Uh, so you live in the countryside? Uh, so I actually should have started by saying that right now I'm on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people uh, in Sydney, but normally I live on the unceded lands of the Darawal people, uh, which is on the southeast coast of Australia, just inland a little bit. Uh, so there are three rivers that pass through these very high escarpments and we live at the top of the river that is nearest the coast. So the land is, it's rainforest land. And when you're there, it feels as if the escarpments or the cliffs, you probably think of them as canyons. Uh, it's as if they've got their arms around you. Uh, so you're nestled in this very high valley with the arms of the canyons around you, and then a river running through the valley. And that is where we live. You said to me once that um, you moved there for a purpose. So before we get to the terrible events of 2020 that provoked you to write Summertime, can, can you tell me something about that purpose? Because I think it has something to do with the multi-species justice project. It does. There are really two purposes. Of course, we always do things for reasons that we don't understand, but there were two that I do understand. And one of them was, like most human people who are brought up in this culture, who are shaped in this culture, I had a very anthropocentric way of being. Uh, so for example, thinking about justice, the way that we conceive of justice is justice is for humans. And that became increasingly intolerable for me, my own anthropocentrism, the way that I thought about and lived with other beings, uh, I, I didn't want to be that way anymore. And part of my own, my own journey of understanding was that the transformation that I needed to go through wasn't one that I could give myself. That to think that, that I could change myself in that really radical way was part of the same problem as if human beings are floating over above the world and somehow our ideas come from our heads or from some transcendent like source out there. And that if I was going to become a different human being who didn't place myself above everybody else, I need, needed to live with everybody else. I needed to bump into everybody else every day. I needed to have what they wanted and what life was like for them be part of my everyday reality. And so, uh, so I decided I needed to leave the city and go and live in a place where all sorts of other people lived, forest people and moss people and animal people, wild animal people, uh, animal people who had been brought here 
um, mainly for uh, for human needs, and and to live with them in a very everyday. How do we make life together? Uh, so that's the first reason, but I do want to mention the second one because it's relevant to summertime, and that is um, when my so my my grandparents and my parents were both survivors of the Shoah, and when my grandparents came to live in Australia, it became evident to me from the time I was a young adult that they lived very much for those who came after, and. So they, what they did, and in their case, it was investing in property so that uh, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and those, those in their community would have safety. And when I got to a certain age, when I got to 50, actually, I thought, well, now it's my turn, right? What does it mean for me to live for the future? What does it mean for me to take responsibility in my life for those who come after and in my case, it wasn't biological family. It was all beings who come after. Um, thankfully, I'd been given that gift of thinking more broadly. And in the context of climate crisis, it seemed to me that that had to be about living on land, caring for country, uh, living in a place where we could be part of tending the garden of the planet so that we could all flourish as best we could in the context of a very rapidly changing climate. That so that's why sense. I moved. <laughs> that makes sense. So, 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 so you, you, you took your commitment uh, to justice, uh, which, uh, 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 which had, had at first been expressed with regard to humans. Your first book was about the prevention of torture. And, and, and you wanted to expand that and you felt like to do that, you really needed to do that in an, with your body, not exactly. just in your head. And so you went uh, to the bush, uh, to this beautiful land and, and, and soon there were many uh, uh, people of various species living with you, donkeys in particular, uh, but also um, uh, uh, now there are some chickens, I think, uh, but I think there were all horses and then two pigs, um, Katie and Jimmy. And, um, and, and now we start to come to the hard part, which was the experiences that led you to write a book that has the subtitle, Reflections on a Vanishing Future. So the fires of 2020 came and they came closer and closer to you. It was summer, it wasn't raining. The fires were raging, the skies were turning colors that you've never seen before, couldn't have even imagined before um, and seemed to be coming closer and closer. And so you decided um, at some point that for, the safe, for their safety, you needed to relocate uh, Jimmy and Katie uh, to, um, to another property uh, with a friend. Uh, and then in an unthinkably tragic um, turn of events, the fires shifted um, and that property uh, was burned. And you initially thought that both Katie and Jimmy had perished in the fires, 
But then it turned out miraculously that, that Jimmy had survived. And you went to him. Do you remember that? Like it's, like it's right in front of me, I remember that. Um, so it was the 31st of December, 2019. And Jimmy and Katie had gone to this place, Cabago, which is now very infamous in Australia because it's where some of the worst fires were. And we had emptied our house. My partner had driven to Sydney with all of our belongings. And I was in the house and I went outside to roll the gas bottles away so that if the fire came, the gas bottles didn't explode. And when I came back in, there was a missed call on my phone from the person who I call M in summertime. And I called her back. She was the person who was caring for Jimmy and Katie. And she said, everything's gone. And I didn't push her during that conversation because she had literally just been dragged out of a burning house. But as you said, Patrice, for the next 24 hours, we assumed that Jimmy and Katie were both immolated in the fire, which I just cannot begin to express. Although I'm sure everybody here who has lost beings that they love, their family understands, but to feel that we had tried to make them safe and that the, the randomness, the complete unpredictability of climate catastrophe means that this, even this effort to keep people safe is, is undermined. Uh, 24 hours later, I, I received a text from M um, saying we found Jimmy and I assumed that that meant that they had found Jimmy's body because she had found Katie's body. And moments later, a very roughly grain video came in of Jimmy with a black mark on his head running towards the camera and M's voice saying, I know, I know. And so I knew that Jimmy was alive but it took us a week to get down to see him because all of the roads were closed because there were fires raging right across the country. And when we got there, it's difficult to, to, to imagine what a landscape that had been immolated by these, these fires, which are beyond any fires that we had seen before. It was like a, you know, it's like I imagine uh, the landscape after a nuclear bomb, just nothing, nothing. Uh, black or sometimes the land was a like a, a, a vomit yellow from everything that had been burnt and destroyed. And we got to the, the property where, where we were supposed to meet Em and her partner, but they were off seeing the Red Cross, right? The Red Cross in Australia, um, that was the level of emergency that we were in. And so there were no fences, all the fences were down and we went out and we started to call Jimmy and we called him and eventually he must've heard our voices. He was some way away. And I saw this, I always thought of him like, a, uh, like an ocean liner 
because he was so big and and beautiful the way he moved this pink ocean liner moving across the black land and he approached us but he wouldn't actually come near us it was very strange he he walked parallel with us about 30 feet away from us back to where the house had been and was no longer where our car and the trailer were parked and this is hard what I'm about to say Katie was also there and I saw Katie before I really had a choice about whether I wanted to see Katie or not and once I saw her I felt like I had a responsibility to really see her properly and not to walk away I felt like she had had to go through what she had to go through and that my bearing witness and being present to her and what that was going to do to me how I was going to understand as a result of that was really important and so I stood and I describe in summertime what that was like to stand with this person who I loved so much who who I had crouched over her water trough with her uh, looking at her and her looking at me and where I had hung out with her and I used to go and read with Katie I used to take my, this is part of my practice we were talking before about your body I used to take my my books and my papers down into where they lived and I would lie on Katie's side and read and there was this being who had been warm and stood next to me and there she was black shard and Jimmy was alive like Jimmy was alive and so we we managed to to take Jimmy home it was a horrific four and a half hour drive uh, he was so hot imagine living for a week on this burnt land where even a week later when you put your foot on the land it was still hot from the fire and when we got him home, it was the most joyous experience out of this devastation to see him walk into his home and he took himself into his mud bath. I have a little grainy video that I took of it. He took himself into his, his beautiful wallow that, that we had filled up with water, of course, because it was too dry, there was no rain. And he, you know, swam around it and, and he covered himself in mud. And then he went to bed, he went to his house and he went to sleep. And the next morning when he got up, he was different. He stood, I remember exactly where he stood near their house and he just looked around and he looked around as if he had been placed in another universe that he didn't recognize. And he didn't want his breakfast, he didn't want a drink. And it seemed to me that what had happened to him and what had happened to Katie was now present to him. For that week after they died, he had been in such hypervigilance and terror that I don't think that he'd been able to process what happened. But once he got home and once it was safe again, or reasonably safe, I think it 
it became present his what he'd been through and that Katie was not there any longer. Katie and Jimmy, uh, we didn't say they were brother and sister and they had been taken from the, the floor of a factory farm where they were wastage pigs, right? They were thrown there to die. And so they had survived together. They had found life together. They had made life together. They had slept together every day of their lives. And now Katie was no longer and Jimmy had slept alone for the first time in his life. And so for the next 10 days, Jimmy didn't really eat and didn't really drink. He was, he was remarkable, Patrice. I learned so much from Jimmy during that time. Uh, Jimmy was an incredible architect and engineer, and he had built in his world the most wonderful places to lie. There were places where it was cool in the afternoon and there were places where it was warm in the morning. And he just took himself to his different places that he built and he lay on the earth. And we did what we could to care for him uh, with the help of amazing people all around the world who, who after I wrote about him and they read about him who offered care. But really it was up to him, really, he was deciding whether he was gonna live or die. And at a certain point, he decided to live. Uh, and the first thing he ate was um, sober, miso sober noodles that we were like, we were like the Jewish parents, like offering him food all the time. Um, but he chose the miso sober noodles. And um, yeah, I learned a lot about what it means to grieve, what it means to confront climate catastrophe, what it means to decide to live after you have been immersed in climate catastrophe. I learned a lot from him. I still learn a lot from him. Pretty shortly, even while this was happening, you wrote. And people responded to what you wrote. And at some point, you decided, this is going to, I'm writing a book. What was it you were wanting to convey? During the Black Summer Fires, there was a global conversation about these fires everywhere in the world. You know, there was articles on the front page of the New York Times about the fires. It was, it was in the global media, it was a global conversation. And there was, I think, more recognition of the impact that climate catastrophe has on beings other than humans than there had been before, because I think of the extent of the killing. You know, in the end, we estimate that three and a quarter billion, three and a quarter billion, just stop with that for a second, wild animals were killed 
So there was a recognition that this was not just about human beings. And yet still, it felt to me like we still othered them a little bit. We still didn't really get that they were having an experience of this, an experience that was emotional, an experience that was full of meaning. You know, this is one of the big divides that people in this culture have made between human people and other people is that we're the, we're the storytellers, right? We're the ones who have a meaningful universe. And it's just like watching, being with my, my, um, my community, my other than human community, it was clear that it was full of meaning for them. It was affecting their relationships. It was affecting how they, uh, how they moved around their worlds. It was deep, it had a deep emotional impact on them. And because that was so close to me, I wanted to make that present for other people. And that, that, I think that was what was so important about the piece that I wrote about Jimmy, which as you said, Patrice, I wrote before he decided to live. I wrote about five days after when he was still in this place of such profound grief. And I wanted to make present for others that we're not the only ones who are in loss and fear and hope and terror and rage and this full range of emotions that, that we human people feel, that, that other people are feeling that as well. And that as we move forward and think about what do we do? How do we need to transform our practices, our institutions? They have to be there too, right? They have to be part of that as well uh, because they're here with us as well. And, you know, as you said, when you introduced me, I'm in I'm the last 17 years, I've been an academic. And the beautiful thing about being academic is that you get all this time to think, right? And to, to hone your ideas. But the, the downside of it is it tends to be a pretty closed conversation. And we talk to a, a, a group that, and we have all sorts of walls that we build around our conversations, the language that we use, where we publish, uh, what we assume, uh, about the nature of the conversation. And that's not, that's not okay for me anymore. These are questions that affect everybody, every human, every being other than human. And this is a conversation that we have to be having together. And certainly I feel like I have been so privileged to be able to think about these things and then Here's this being who's me, who has had the privilege of being able to think about things. And then, boom, I'm thrown into the conflagration of climate catastrophe. And that meant that I, I felt like I had a big responsibility to talk about this in a way that would, would give others, to the extent that writing can do that, 
an imagined understanding of what it was like to be there for all of us. And once, once you have that understanding, certainly that's been my experience, everything changes, everything changes. What, what matters to you changes, what you're willing to say no to changes, what you're willing to say yes to changes. Because when you love place, when you love other people, when you, when you want them to have a life, like I wanted Katie to have her life and what humans or some humans are doing that's making that impossible and you know that in your body, I think you change what you do. And that's what I wanted to do with the book. I wanted, I don't want everybody to have to have the fire at their door to know the truth of what this means for all of us earth beings who live there. I don't want that. That's my fear. My fear is that it is going to have to be as real for Jimmy for re as real for others as it was for Jimmy before they get it. And so my work, my writing is an effort to make that not true, is an effort to, to have other people get that so that they will do what we need to do. And I don't know what that is. I'm not presuming to know what it is, that we have to work that out together, right? But, but first we have to know the importance of the at-stakeness of, of what's going on. I, 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 I really appreciate the way, you, the way you said that. And, and, and I think that's why you've called it the multi-species justice collective, because we do have to collectively figure out what to do, but we also have to be collectively motivated, um, sufficiently collectively motivated. Um, one of the things that I, I love about summertime is how accessible it is. Um, it, it, reads, it reads like a novel um, rather than like an academic uh, uh, tome. Um, and so I'm gonna shout out to Penguin uh, uh, Australia that we need that to be published in the US and elsewhere in the world. Um, and I'm also gonna put on our show notes for this show, uh, links to Danny's first article about Jimmy um, and some other of Danny's work that you might be interested in reading. How, how do, I don't wanna say how do you keep going, but I, I, I want, I, but I want to ask, how do you keep going? I've heard you say something at some point about hope as a discipline hmm. or a kind of discipline. Can you, can you, can you say more about that? Because I, I think that so many people um, who uh, have come face to face with any of the horrors that we've now mentioned, whether that be uh, 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 the fires, floods elsewhere, war, torture, 
struggle. So what's your what's your what's your way of managing that struggle against despair? That expression, hope is a discipline, is Marion Carpets. She talks about her grandma saying to her that hope is a discipline. And I also really appreciate Marianne um, Hegler's notion of hope as she says, I love this, she says, if you want hope, go out and earn it. Um, so this idea that hope isn't some amorphous idea that somehow we have in our heads, hope is a practice. Hope is you make hope like, like you make food. It, it's something that you, you do every day uh, in the way that you live. What enables me to do it? Well, firstly, what enables me to do it is that I have a responsibility to do it. Like I said, I am one of the, one of the beings on this planet who has been gifted with this enormous privilege and I've lived a good life and I've been, uh, unlike many other people, I've, I've been able to to flourish in many ways. And with that comes responsibility, right? And it's also about, you know, being an, 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 an older person, like we, you know, a, a, an Aboriginal woman said something to me that I found really quite confronting and true and a real call. It's like, who are you to feel despair, right? Who are you to feel despair? You've lived a good life get in there and work so that others can live a good life. So that's the, that's the ethical part of the story. And also part of that is, you know, there's something that I'm incredibly grateful for that my parents and grandparents were survivors of the Shoah because I know in my body that worlds can come to an end. This is not abstract for me. And with that knowledge, again, comes responsibility. So that, that is a big driver for me. But the other is a lot less highfalutin, which is I just live with really beautiful people. <laughs> you know, I I, I get being, to of course, of donkeys. Yeah, donkeys. I get to wake up every morning and I look out and they're in their house and I, I go into the kitchen where there's a big window and they're looking at me with their arms crossed going like, you know, breakfast is late. Uh, and and that, that daily call into their lives and then being able to go down and have them push me against the wall and touch me with their beautiful warm noses and show me how they live and um, and the lessons that they give me. You know, we've moved two years ago, the summer of fire, and this has been the summer of floods. And I've shared this with you, Patrice, but it's one of my favorite uh, events of these floods has been, uh, we have lots of wombats where we live. We don't have uh, emus, emus, we're too, high and wet for emus but we have wombats and for uh, anyone who doesn't know what a wombat is I have an American friend 
who I thought beautifully described wombats as a 200 pound hamster. <laughs> um, so they're like little Australian bears and uh, they're the most brilliant creatures, um, but their homes are underground. And so the wombats who live with whom we live have lost their homes because they're all their homes are all flooded. But now one of the wombats lives in the in the donkey's house. And uh, so often in the morning I go in there and the chickens are in there because the donkeys are really good guards and the wombats there and the donkeys are there. And I'm like, you guys, you know, you are the multi-species collective. <laughs> you know, you are, you are showing me what it means to adapt to climate change. I don't believe that wombats and donkeys and chickens have a history of living together. And yet there they are living together. And that, that experience of surprise, at surprise, you know, you talked about um, the wonder of like coming eye to eye with, with emus and how the history of emus survivance of, of the attempts of, of, of um, omnicide, of genocide against them uh, gives you hope and that's, they give me hope because they have all sorts of ways of navigating uh, their world, even as their world is changing, that I don't know about, which is great. There's nothing better than being put in your place, right? There's nothing better than being, um, being shown every day that you know this tiny, tiny little bit of the universe and that if you make friends with other other people, if you, uh, if you're permeable to them, if they become part of the collective of how we can live, wow, the expansion of what we can learn is just infinite. That's so beautifully said. Uh, and, and I see that we're, 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 we're out of time. I'm still thinking about emus uh now uh and and uh, what you said about hope i was thinking about how the emus here um completely disregard all of the things that the humans built for them or or, or thought that they would like or would want to do um and yet uh have there are have created all of these pathways uh through the woods uh through their walking and that reminds me of then the the emus uh, where they belong in Australia, uh, who have survived these millions of years. Um, I was thinking of this when you were talking about discipline and 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 just do it because they 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 make paths by walking, like they don't wait for them there to be a path. The walking is what creates the path. And so I'm going to thank you so much, Danny Selemeyer. Please uh, check our show notes for links. Thank you for tuning in to In Context. Um, in addition to thanking Danny, I want to thank our producer, Sarah Jane Blum. And I want to thank you for tuning in and say that I am so excited to see what paths you will create by walking. Thank you. Thank you.